this episode contains strong language that might not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised. This is Breaking Bread with Brilliant Babes. I'm your host, Tatiana Jimenez. We're recording today in Kihei on Maui, and I'm joined today by my friend, Pahol Sukasikan. Hi. <laughs> it's great to be here, and as you guys can hear, it's a little loud because we're currently poolside, and it feels very MTV Spring Break right now. So thank you, Pahol, for taking time. Thank and you for having me. With me and yeah. <laughs> being on the show. For any first-time listeners out there, our purpose here is to shed some light on everyday people doing brilliant things. I typically invite them into my home, cook a meal, and then we eat together and chat about their careers and how they got where they are today. So Pahol is, um, this interview is a little bit different because Pahol is in academia and he is both a lecturer and a PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So Pahol, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're studying there and just a little bit about your background? Sure, Tatiana. Thanks for having me and um, asking these questions. Um, so my work deals with the ways in which uh, contemporary Thai popular culture queers notions of Thainess or Thai identity informed by the Western economies of desire, as well as state practices of respectability. So essentially, a lot of the pro- much of my um, archive deals with performance and pop culture and how that kind of says uh, or gives a quote unquote fuck you to um, notions of Thai hypersexuality informed by the West, as well as the ways in which the Thai nation state has used conservative politics to inform what a proper Thai citizen should be. So that's a really smart way of kind of uh, putting like lots of stereotypes into perspective, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so I just want to clarify really quick though. So when I say fuck you, so fuck, the term fucking is purposefully used in my project my second chapter is called Fucking Bangkok, and so I talk about the ways in which a contemporary queer performance troupe on YouTube reimagines Thai queer hypersexuality by playing and being hyper by playing with what it means to be Thai um, by drawing upon their own desires and their own um, um, sexual bodies as a way to re-engage queer notions Thais. So when I use the words to fuck or fucking, historically um, it has really loaded imagery with, let's say, Thailand or Southeast Asia, particularly with um, the ways in which militarism, the way in which military as well as tourism has run rampant within the Southeast Asian region. Um, Historically, we have, um, in terms of fucking, the ways in which, you know, the West, particularly servicemen and army servicemen in the military, as well as sexual sex tourists, have used fucking as a way to, to fuck, to get fucked, or to use fucking in a violent capitalistic very subversive way and for the way i do see it and the way which a lot of queer theory has drawn upon it is the way in which fucking thus emerges as a political agent that is playful that is fun that draws upon some nature that subverts dominant heteronormative patriarchal ideology that says kind of this is our identity for us to play with for us to fuck with um and to us to empower ourselves with so um yeah. yeah, that's really great. Also, this episode is not going to be for children. <laughs> there you go. Sorry out there. <laughs> that's okay. Or, or not sorry, as Demi Lovato says. <laughs> well, thanks for that. So, um, 
So I know that you, so you're originally from like Berkeley area in, in the Bay Area. Yes, born in Oakland, raised in Berkeley and El Cerrito. Uh, my parents owned a restaurant in North Berkeley. They had a Thai restaurant for 32 years. And so I'm, I'm very much a East Bay, B-A-E, East Bay individual so yeah so i know i know that you were really involved with like the thai temple so you've been really involved in the thai community is that kind of what informed your decision to go into american studies you know for your for your doctorate okay so i initially started as i so i met tatiana in my undergrad at uc irvine and i originally was an art major studio art major i entered into asian american studies by through uc irvine because i took a couple classes from Linda Vo and a couple other professors at the campus. And I realized that a lot of Thai American history and identity and culture was not being represented, even though there was a fairly good amount of ties within the United States. And so I entered into, I moved, so after I graduated from the University of California, Irvine, I moved back to the Bay Area to help my parents out at a restaurant and to manage it. And that's when I decided to go to grad school because I wanted to focus on Thai American studies. Um, and as I told Tatiana earlier, I entered grad school and a lot of my committee members, my dissertation committee members in my chair, know that going into grad school and focusing on Thai American studies was a love letter to my parents to talk about the kind of hard work that they've helped, that they've done while being in the U.S., as well as the ways in which they helped build the Thai American community in the United States. They were, I think, they came after 1965, after the Immigration Naturalization Act, and they helped the Thai American community as just build and build a strong platform and the temples in the Bay Area. We were actually, I believe, the third Thai restaurant in the Bay Area. I could be wrong, and it might be my memory betraying me and me just trying to plug my parents' restaurant, which they sold already, but... Yeah, well, um, I was lucky to go there once. That's true, that's and true. And see your super cute childhood photo on the wall. I used to be... <laughs> so my parents... Um, yeah, so that picture is... My parents are... They were a big fan of showing... Um, or, you know, just showing off my sister and I. Me and my sister at the restaurant. So there's pictures of our family, family all over the restaurant. And there's this one image of me dressed in Thai garb. Um, traditional Thai garb from the 19th century. At that one of those Thai photo gal- photo booth galleries studios, they're very much akin to those Western studios that you, we have in the U.S. Right? That we have, like let's say, Great America or Six Flags that everyone's like gunsling in. Oh yeah, yeah. So exactly. yeah, Victorian or yeah, yeah, the, the Victorian, old the Old West, <laughs> yeah. where everyone feels like their macho, their machismo is like on full display. And um, no, so in Thailand we have those, but our very much like old timey in terms of yeah. tie dress and all. So Love it. that's what Tatiana loves. <laughs> her and our friend Marissa Barker. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. So along your journey so far, has there been anyone who has been a mentor to you and are you a mentor to others now? So I think the mentor question deals, it, it comes in stages, right? So I think that, you know, when I was a child and growing up, you know, I, I didn't realize that until my undergrad, but I think my mentors were my mom and dad. And this is very cheesy and this is very, you know, very Hallmark-esque kind of, you know, answer. But I think, you know, being the son of immigrants and kind of 
seeing the ways in which the sociopolitical landscape has been changing the past couple of years, even in today with the ways in which you know, we have the Trump administration as well as very conservative rightist views of immigrant policy and whatnot. I mean, for me, my parents, first and foremost, and continually, have been my mentors of how I am as a queer Thai American man and the ways in which I help interact and um, am shaped by the world around me. But being in, uh, you go into TC Irvine, I think one of the biggest mentors I did have in the academic sense was Linda Vo, Linda Trin Vo, who taught one of, taught one of my uh, classes in Asian American studies, and she taught me a class on ethnography, and it was a senior project class that I just took as part of my degree, and she was super supportive. She understood the fact that there's a hole, a gaping hole in terms of Thai American studies within Asian American studies. Thais in Southeast Asian American studies and Asian American studies have been kind of marginalized and typecast as the lucky immigrants who were able to come on their own regard, not as a refugee, as well as were economic immigrants who had kind of this leverage in terms of um, class, economy, or money and whatnot. So we're kind of not really talked about, right? Because we don't, people say that we don't necessarily have that trauma from war, but we do, right? And post-Vietnam War, talking, thinking about commercial tourism, talking about sex tourism, thinking about the ways that ties have been so influenced and are reliant on Western capital. And so Linda Vo, I mean, long story short, I mean, I talk a lot, right? But I mean, <laughs> sorry, and we're drinking too, so I mean, I'm talking a lot. But the ways in which Linda Vo understood that, right? Understood that as a Vietnamese-American woman, strong-ass woman, she understood that whole and that kind of like that erasure of sorts and was super supportive, wrote my letter of rec to grad school and was so supportive. But in nowadays, you know, one of the big supporters I have and my mentors is Vernadette Vicuna Gonzalez, who is my dissertation chair. And she just released her book on a comparative look of militarism between Hawaii and the Philippines, looking at sites that the military has used that has thus become landscapes for tourism, recreational tourism and pleasure. And that's specifically American military. Excuse me, American military, right? And um, But we know that like with the Philippines, it's just super complicated um, because of Spain and whatnot. But yeah, America and the ways in which those sites have thus become packaged by contemporary recreational tourism. But she, so Vernet, uh, Dr. Gonzalez has been super supportive, has always been there. And I think she's like one of the most badass and amazing feminist scholars and chairs that we have. The chairs, a lot of the academics that I meet in terms of like being in a, like a associate professor position because she's smart, she's dynamic, but she's also super compassionate. I mean, she will kick my ass. That's why I picked her. She is super smart and on top of it. She'll kick my ass, but she's also understanding in terms of, you know, we're in a learning process. Right? A, lot of her, yeah. a lot of the grad students are still in the learning process. And that a lot of us, you know, most of us are students of color and have have a lot of our... We... The words betray me, but my memory is betraying me right now. But I mean, we have a lot of responsibilities towards our family. And so the whole time I've been in grad school, I've, I've had scholarships, but and loans, but I've worked many jobs, and she's understood that because I send money home. So one of the greatest mentors I have is Vernet Gazals. We've covered, you know, who your mentors are, 
do you think that you are a mentor to others and have you, you know, cause I know that you're a lecturer and I'm sure you formed a lot of maybe bonds or like friendships with your students. So do you see yourself as a mentor? So like, so I was telling top 10 before that. I mean, think that no one really thinks that they're a mentor cause you just do it out of the kindness of your heart. And you just, I mean, you try to live as a decent human being and I mean, like she said, I was, I've been a lecturer for the past three years at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. And as well as I've been active in my own community doing activism work as well as forms of community building. And I deal with a lot of younger folks, um, particularly folks of color, sometimes uh, queer folks of color. But I mean, going back to lecturing, you know, I just teach. And so. And you um, teach some really cool classes that I wish I could attend. <laughs> yeah, so I teach. So when I first started teaching, um, I taught American Studies, Institutions of Movement, talking about the ways in which different marginal folks in the United States have fought back, um, thinking about the ways they have formed, pro- did they protest, they formed community, and reimagined a belonging with, under the, the U.S. nation state, right? Because, you know, the U.S., doesn't necessarily belong to everyone, right? To select a few. But in my second class, I taught as a lecturer was uh, hip hop in American culture, focusing on gender and sexuality. And in that class, actually, because it's more intimate and because we deal with more complicated... Well, first, I deal, I deal with a lot of upper division students and we deal with a lot of complicated, very sensitive subject material. I was able to, you kind of put your heart and soul out there, right? And you put your, um, everything that you are out on the forefront. And so there I became really good friends, um, and built a strong rapport with a couple of my students, Brila, Phoenix, Kasha, and others, and Brian Wynn. And so, I mean, like, you know, you appreciate Maddie. I'll give a shout out to Maddie. You know, you appreciate these students in a whole different way, right? I mean, and it's like, it's not that you're mentoring them. I'm sure I do mentor them, but, you know, they mentor me as well. It's yeah, a reciprocal I'm sure relationship. you learn a lot from your students. Yeah, because you're dealing with, I mean, particularly in American studies, you're dealing with the humanities. You're dealing with classes that are informed by personal experience and informed by personal stories and the ways everyone sees the world to, quite differently, to be honest. And, I mean, I have a way, so, for example, hip-hop, like, I have a way in which I view hip-hop, right? I love female MCs. I love when women and queer folks are super hypersexual and, you know, empower themselves with their own sexuality and use the language of their communities to build. And, you know, I mean, look at, like, my students who see hip-hop in a different way. Some of them are into hyper-masculinity. Some of them are into gangster rap. Some of them are into... You know, like female MCs and, and or progressive and progressive hip hop, right? Politically engaged. And so, um, it all depends, but it's all, you know, the mentor question is very complicated because it's like you, you teach and you mentor, but you are also a mentee. And so you have to, no matter what, what profession you are, no matter who you are, you have to recognize that because to say that you are just mentoring and that you're teaching, it's kind of it's kind of bullshit, and it's like you know it's it's also very egotistical because the thing is like you as a a human being are continuously learning and being influenced by the people in the world around you. So yeah. sure, but yeah, and, but I think 
also you um, you want to share the things that you've learned throughout your of course, of your journey okay. and stuff. And I think also, but I totally see where you're coming. Like I don't walk around saying like I'm a mentor, but you do. Though. <laughs> I wear I wear a cool brooch that says I'm a mentor. <laughs> but no, but um, but yeah, no. I think you just want to share things that you've learned. I mean, it's like the same thing I do with my sisters. Mm, like course. I'm sure your sister has imparted some or has tried to impart some wisdom onto you. So I mean, <laughs> I so, don't listen to her. <laughs> so when I, I well, the question about the mentor, like uh, going back, like yeah. you know, because I deal so much with my mom and dad, and like. But one of the like biggest mentors I've ever had was my is my sister, you know, mm. was and is my sister. Yeah, she was the unofficial third parent in our immigrant family. You know, my mom and dad had the restaurant and they were working pretty much all day and all night. My dad got up at five in the morning, four in the morning. We go to Chinatown and would come back and work at the restaurant until let's say two, three o'clock. Would take maybe like a two hour break and go work until eleven o'clock. Right. Um, my mom, same thing. Right. My sister was the unofficial parent because she had to, she's nine years older than me and she had to babysit me, you know. We fight a lot. I mean, well, not so much anymore, but I love my sister with all my heart. Like, even though, I don't know if she really knows it, but she has been one of the biggest sources of inspiration and how I come to see myself as a decent human being. Like, um, I know she tries to teach her sons about that. She has three sons and I don't know, like for me... I wouldn't be who I am today without the compassion, without the strength of my sister, because she had to fight so hard to become who she is today. She's a doctor, a medical doctor, and so she has taught me about surviving, not just surviving, but thriving, you know, and... That's great. That's really beautiful. <laughs> All right. So the next question that I have, um, I just hope I just want to let everyone know, and I hope that Touchdown doesn't edit this out. But we just did a shot of Chivas Regal, and I peer pressured as she knows that I am a master at peer pressure. Um, and so I just peer pressured Touchdown. I just got peer pressured by the pool to take a shot of rum because you know Spring Break 1992 Forever Carson Daly presents Rihanna and Destiny Child. Finesse. Finesse, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the next question I have is, what has been your biggest obstacle so far slash shittiest moment? Obstacle slash quote-unquote shittiest moment. Okay, so I have two. I think one of the shittiest moments, the first one was, you know, I was in my undergrad, and I was trained to be working in, I was working in housing, um, and Kelly Swanholm, if you hear this, shout out to you because you worked in housing with me at the time. And I think that we were doing a bonding exercise. And then I got a call from my mom telling me that my dad, we had, during the, we, when we saw the restaurant, my dad, who isn't that, who wasn't that strong anymore, had, while he was carrying a bunch of plates at the, at a restaurant, fell down. And he dropped all the food everywhere and all the plates. And people felt bad for him and tried to help him up, but he was super embarrassed. And so I was, I almost dropped out of school and moved back up to the barrier so I could help my mom and dad. But my mom told me to stay in school. My dad got really mad at me and told me to stay in school. I stayed in school, but it was like a shitty moment to hear that my dad fell down and to realize that time was taking its toll and he was getting weak. Um, my second one was recently, well, only like two years ago. 
I was preparing for my qualifying exams, my comprehensive qualifying exams, for my to become a PhD candidate. And we're supposed to read like two hundred books, but I had like two hundred plus, like two hundred twenty, two hundred thirty, and it was it was a struggle. I mean, no disrespect to the PhD process, but it was. I mean, like I've talked to my friends about it. It was, it was very much like a hazing process. I mean, you're supposed to read two hundred plus books, give an exam over four nights of four different essays that come out to be fifteen to twenty pages each, and then you're given a like two to three hour quote unquote conversation. But it more feels like you're being grilled. I'm, I mean, I'm just keep being real right now, you know? Uh-huh. And, you know, I love and I respect my committee with all my heart, but I think that was the hardest thing because it's just like, first, you know, you feel stupid as fuck because you're learning all this new theory and a lot of it's hard and you're tired every day because you're trying to read a book a day. And I think that it was hard because I was trying, I was working another job. I was working, I was trying to be, I was teaching. So I was, I was working on a job in the library, I was teaching, and I was studying for my exams while taking some classes, and I felt so stupid, and I became a mild alcoholic because I couldn't sleep at night because I was thinking about the exam, I was thinking about what I needed to read, what I what that last article that I had to get in my brain, um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, scared, having dreams that I failed, having dreams telling my committee members told me I failed. And, you know, it was, it was a horrible experience. I, I, was a, I was a really low point in my life. My partner, bless his heart, he, who's been by my side the whole time, was super supportive, would try to take me out when I needed to go out, and, you know, just would just ask me what I needed. And I think that's... If any other PhD students do that and have partners or have really good friends, that's what you need. Mm-hmm. You need one person, that one person to just be like, while you're taking your exams or preparing for exams, to say, what do you need? What can I do for you? And if you don't have that, you go find yourself someone who fucking will do that for you because, damn, that's real. So what was your your biggest opportunity so far slash best moment? Okay. I started my dissertation last January in 2017, and I accomplished so much. I wrote all four chapters. I mean, they're drafts, and they're really messy, but... I wrote pretty much all of it within a year and some change. And that has been the most... That I'm so proud of that. I also got two publications out. One through the um, Angelistica, which is an Italian um, publication. It's called... Uh, my article is called Pussy Paradise Elephants. Um, and it compares Thai and Hawaiian literature in the face of U.S. tourism and empire. Right, And so what happens after when, you know, you're dealing with and it's appropriate that we're in Kihei right now and in Maui, right? Um, because you're, we're thinking about the ways in which, you know, what happens after the fact that tourists leave? What happens after mm-hmm. when the vacationers leave? Who cleans up after these folks, right? Who cleans up after these people? It's usually the locals who need jobs, who are disenfranchised by um, a global economy that has relied on their pretty much brown labor. My boyfriend just walked in and he is looking fine as fuck. <laughs> Honey. So, anyways, um, but yeah, so like, so what happens? Because so I compared Thailand and Hawaii in this article because they are both places that have been impacted by the military and tourism, right? So I saw a lot between them, and so this article was a love letter to my time in Hawaii because many I've befriended a lot of Hawaiians and indigenous folks, and so I wanted to give back to the community that has kind of welcomed me, and so that was a high point. That's really and then great. I got another. 
Sorry. So uh, then I got it one more article through the Radical History Review through Duke University Press that it's a short article, but it's a, a small piece of my dissertation, my last chapter, that talks about this uh, Thai country singer. She was illiterate, but she rose to fame because she changed the face of Thai country music. She died at 31 um, because she had lupus and lymphoma, but has been celebrated ever since, right? So I was really proud of myself that as be, I was able to become part of the Duke University Press family. So, awesome. Um, yeah. That's great. And that's a big deal for PhD students yeah. to get published, yeah. right? Because that's what you want to do. That's what your goal is. Of course. Is. Oh, one more. I introduced my, my beautiful and loving partner, who's taking off a shirt right now, to my family in Thailand. And that is, Sweet. that meant a lot. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little buzzed. I'm sorry, everyone. So, whatever. <laughs> All right, so I guess the next segment of the show is where we like to talk about hidden talents. So I like to talk about things that are not necessarily work or in your in your case, like academia related. So things outside of the academic world that you're into that might be like considered a hidden talent. So I actually don't know what yours is. So what do you think your hidden talent might be? I'm shocked. You're my friend. <laughs> Like I said, I was an art major, so I draw, and mm, I think I'm—I right. think I'm a fairly okay. I knew this strong then. artist, drawer, whatever. But yeah, so I draw. I've had a couple art shows, solo group group art shows. Tatiana went to my first one. Was it in the Castro? I think it was at a coffee shop. No, no that was my second one. Okay. Anyway, so I was, I'm an artist. <laughs> I cook really good Thai food. Um, I love my boyfriend or partner. Or husband. That's not really a hidden talent. We but, I mean, okay, yo, I'm pretty sprung and whipped, so that's not really a hidden talent. That's just, but you know, I anytime I can mention Tony, yeah. I'll do it. And, Tony's great. Yeah, and he's handsome. Uh huh. I'm okay. really oh well, yes, activism, activism too. Uh huh. I'm really good at going for blood, verbally. Uh huh. In terms of a verbal fight, and when people try to step up to me, and I know they're wrong, I'm good at like tearing them down. That's great. And actually, that would be a hidden talent because you are very affable. And yeah, I'm super nice. Yeah. Really funny. Yeah. And so, and I've seen it happen where you see some injustice happening and a switch goes off. Wait, when did this happen? I don't know. Just around Tatiana's town. lying. Just around town. She's lying. I just, I just know you. <laughs> Maybe I can imagine it. She's part of the Russian probe. <laughs> She's. <laughs> I know things. I back into parking spaces. I'm secretly a spy. <laughs> So this whole, so just real quick, so this whole trip, we've been backing into parking spaces, and if you guys out there are listening, back into your parking space, you never know when the apocalypse comes, and you need to, like, say, sorry, auntie, bye. Yeah, you need to get out. a swift exit. Get the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, no affiliation with Taylor Swift, but give a swift exit. Yes. And, but by the way, fuck you, Taylor Swift. Don't edit that All out. All right. Well, now all the Swifties are going to get mad at me. Who cares? Whatever. <laughs> it's okay. The team only, Perry and Team Devato. The only Swiftie I care about is Kathy. Demi Lovato. Sorry, Kathy, but fuck Taylor Swift. Okay. <laughs> all right. So let's move on to... I have um, a couple listener questions oh, for you. Oh, this is long. Okay. Well, you're saying a lot. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> So, the question I have for you is, gender norms and conservative family traditions are still conscious in Thailand. 
How does this translate to families who immigrated to America on women, men, and the LGBTQ communities, especially, specifically the transgender communities? And I don't know if, um, I don't know if you could speak to that. Okay, so I don't know if I should speak about trans because, let's say, I'm not, I'm not trans myself. Um, but, you know, so, in Thailand, so, it's seemingly a liberal state, right, but, nation state, but at the same time, it's a fairly, Conservative because to be Thai is Buddhist. To be Buddhist is to be Thai, and to be vice versa. But Thailand's very conservative, right? I mean, we're dealing with a monarchy. We're dealing with conservative views of respectability and family, whatever you know, and Buddhism and tradition, right? Tradition is heavy. Um, You know, the being like the one. It's romanticized, but the one Thai Southeast Asian nation to not be formally colonized, and the Thais are very proud of that, right? Even though we are colonized in a neo-colonial sense by the economy, by um, all that good stuff. So, um, tourism again. But a lot of folks who migrate to the U.S., Thai folks, deal with that in terms of, you know, trying to uphold the tradition, trying to uphold the culture, and a lot of it's conservative, right? But I think, you know, when you're dealing with, like, immigrants, you know, when you're dealing with the diaspora, Folks who leave their homes, sometimes forced, in terms of like war, economic opportunities, all that stuff, right? You know, they reimagined their identities while thinking about the homeland still, but they reimagined their identities, um, particularly with you deal with Asian Americans, right? Asians who are in the United States, because the U.S. still sees them as like the model minority or seen, there's a lot of xenophobia, right, in the U.S. And so I think that. A lot of these folks have to reimagine their space, the diaspora, right? Reimagine cultural traditions, reimagine how they relate to the world, reimagine how they are as themselves. And so, you know, a lot of, I feel like, you know, I mean, think about my dad. Like, I mean, I love my mom, but I think she's still very conservative. And, like, it's hard for her because I'm the only son. But I think with my dad, like, he, I feel like he's more open to queer issues and whatnot. Um, because it's just like it's more about survival, right? And it's about like the ways in which being in a different country has changed you, and how do you survive and how do you adapt, right? And but uh, also, do you think it's important to mention that your parents uh, are both uh, academic scholars as well? Like they both went to graduate school. Okay, so yeah, so my dad is uh, academic. He went to graduate school, went for his PhD, got his master's, went for his PhD. My mom didn't necessarily go to grad school, but she went to school for cosmetology but yeah she my mom worked as hard as my dad and is like and is a badass um Mm -hmm. but you know so i think i mean i'm not not to not to not to limit the diaspora but like my my dad's education informed a lot of the ways in which he sees the world you know sure yeah Uh, yeah. you know i think that's the case for a lot of people yeah, yeah so yeah so but i think like you know you're dealing with when you deal with immigrants you're not just ties but you're dealing with a lot of immigrants and refugees or whatnot like you, your culture and your identity becomes hybridized, right? It becomes altered in the ways in which you have to adapt. You have to reimagine yourself and your positions and your schools of thought. You know, the ways in which you think, because you're in a new place, that is sometimes very violent and sometimes very not accepting, right? And so I think, like with them, like you know, talking about the LGBTIQ community. Wait, by the way, shout out to my friend Ava Houston Ladner, who is transitioning. Hashtag trans is beautiful. Hashtag trans is life. Hashtag you are my homegirl. <laughs> so, who's in my PhD program too and is doing amazing work? 
Um, her the title of her dissertation, by the way, is NASCAR bitches and driver dads. Last call bitches. NASCAR oh, bitches NASCAR and driver dads. Okay. No, it's not. It's that's not the title, but that's the title okay. we, we joke about. Um, no, but I think like you know, it's. I think LGBTIQ is more accepted here than in Thailand because I mean I read an article recently, and much of my work deals with like you. Know, I think like a good portion of contemporary Thai youth, eighteen to thirty-five. Still think that still think that homosexuality is wrong because of they feel like they read Buddhism in a different way, which is the case for a lot of things, right? Like you look at Christianity, Catholicism, mm-hmm. and all that. So yeah, yeah. So well, I don't know if this is too personal of a question, but like when it's all personal. You, when, <laughs> the political is always personal. When you when you and Tony, for example, went to Thailand to meet your family, how did that go? Um, Tony was in Thailand, and this goes with his. I feel like with his family too, but like, no, well, I don't know. But like in Thailand, Tony was my really good friend. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, I mean, my mom, my, my immediate family knows. Sure. Yeah. My sister loves Tony. Mm-hmm. My dad and my mom love Tony. Mm-hmm. Even though my mom shows it weird sometimes because she's still very like proper Thai. Okay. But I think like, you know, um, I mean, they're all cool. Like everyone in my... Everyone in my family in Thailand loved Tony. Yeah. Um, it's Tony, hard not to love Tony. I know. It's hard not to love Tony. Tony was a little quiet, though, in Thailand. But, you know, it was him being respectful. And a lot of my family and a lot of my friends were like, Tony's very reaploy, which is very well-mannered and very polite and very respectful. So I was like, that's fine. My boyfriend is respectful. So. Did, and they, did they not say that about you? I'm a hot mess. So, I mean, whatever. <laughs> everyone, remember me, every, everyone remembers me as a troublemaker. So, whatever. That Who talks accurate. politics all the time? Sounds accurate. Basically, I like to end the episode. Where are you going? I thought we were ending. No, not I like, okay. <laughs> He's ready to go back in the pool. So, um, I like to end with the question of what are you looking forward to this week? So, to be honest, like I was telling Tony earlier, I have never been so excited about my dissertation. So, I'm excited to go back to school <laughs> uh-huh. and to spend because I'm not teaching this semester because I got scholarship. Okay. Um, I know. Um, but I'm excited to go back to school and spend four to five hours writing my dissertation every day. Yeah. And, you know, just finishing, you know. I mean, long, I mean, in a way, that's long term, right? Because finishing my dissertation means I'll be graduating and becoming a doctor. So. That's what I'm looking forward to. And then so. you're going to begin a new stage. A new stage. A new chapter. As my boyfriend's sugar daddy. Because he's... What are you? When I become doc, Come here. When I become doctor, what are you? Retired. He said retired. <laughs> so, which I doubted because I got loans <laughs> still, but whatever. All right. Well, is there anything you'd like to plug? Go read my article. It's on Angeliska. Um, A-N-G-L-I-S-T-I-C-A um, and the, the issue is about it's about reimagining mess by Martin Amanalansan who talks about mess as a queer construct but read my article um, okay we'll, we'll put all of the links okay, on cool. the website so people can read your stuff Pohol thank you again for being on the show thanks Hatera to learn more about Pohol and the work that he's doing head over to our website brilliantbabespodcast.com where you can also listen to previous episodes check out our event calendar and get the recipes for the dishes we make each episode clearly for this episode we just drank so I will be linking you to all of the wonderful things that we had here in Kihei take care everyone <laughs>